Good morning, everyone. Uh, so glad. I, I have to say that what Pastor Dennis mentioned is true. Actually, Joya is sick right now, so she's not going to be here today. And our daughter was sick this past week, two days out of school. So there is a lot of sickness going on, not just because it's in our house, but I'm hearing that quite a bit of sickness. So t- please take... Uh, uh, you know, that comment uh, to heart because it's important for us to do that. Well, we're just entering into our first time here that I'm here that we're going to be talking about marriage. Why are we doing that? It's vital. It's vital. We take it for granted. We, we realize, we understand as Christians, we believe that marriage has only one meaning. The uniting of one man and one woman in a single exclusive union as presented in Scripture. Genesis 2, 24, 25 clearly states, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. After it says, his wife, a man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the beauty of marriage. See, marriage is a union that is formed in a civil and religious manner consummated through sexual intimacy. And we clearly as a church believe that a marriage is between one man and one woman, clearly stated from the scriptures. It is a covenant established by God to reflect his glory, to represent Christ's love for the church, to offer hope to a world that needs the love and salvation of Christ. That's what marriage is. It's to exemplify the love of God. It's quite clear even in Ephesians 5 that we understand that. So we have to be careful. Now, why are we talking about marriage? Because, see, when we look at life, decay is normal. In a natural process of aging, buildings fall apart, machines wear down, pictures fade away, and our bodies slowing, slowly, slowly lose tone and strength. We don't have to have a PhD to know when a beautiful home or a landscape will lose its beauty, its beautiful beauty of just walking up in front of a home or looking at the landscape if it's unattended, if it's unattended. In order to keep these things relevant, thriving, and organized, it definitely requires care, maintenance, and even sometimes repair. And that's why marriage is important. So there's no difference in this marriage that we talk about, the importance of the union of one man and one woman. Unless a marriage is nurtured properly, it does fade away like a picture. Marriages are intended to be dynamic, growing deeper in intimacy, not stagnant, not status quo. Unfortunately, we have seen marriages travel down a dark and lonely road leading to despair and potential divorce. And we have shared in the past couple of weeks and months about how divorce is increasing, not only around society in America, but even amongst Christians. Because we are unfortunately not attending well to our marriages. We take it for granted. We wake up in the morning with the same person, and we don't realize that we have to continue the dream. And it's important for us to do so. Because as we're looking at this series, I'm working on this series based on a book called Divorce Proof Your Marriage. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, you mean if I do these things that this book encourages us to do, that means I will have a divorce-proof marriage? I'm saying that if you attend to your marriage and do what's necessary in your marriage, 
I think it's truly possible, or more, it's guaranteed by God that when you attend to your marriage according to the scriptures, it definitely will bring forth divorcing proof your marriage. And so we're going to look at, you have, if you have a handout with you, it's there at the, at the Welcome Center, but if you have that in front of you, this is kind of what we're doing. We're showing forth two uh, mountainsides. One of them is what you'll see in front of you. You start at top with the dream. It was a dream. If you recall of that dream, some of you that are in that age bracket of 40, 50, 60 years of marriage, or maybe that some of you might be just in the 10 and the 15 and the 20 or 30, Whatever the case may be, that day was a dream day, at least for the wife, for the woman. They've dreamt that all of their lives. Now, to some of you, I don't know about you, but when I got married, I didn't have to do much more than just make sure I got my tux and the guys were there. Because my mother-in-law took care of everything with my wife. So it was a great thing because I didn't want to deal with the details. But it was a dream day for her, as I would assume it would be for all of you women out there. But it was a dream day for a man. Because they've been longing to have that opportunity to be with their wife. But you start with the dream. And as you look on the back of this handout that you have, it explains each of the stages. And as you look at it, or we're going to just kind of share a little bit of each stage, you start with the dream. And then when you go to the dream, what happens is you're working through that dream and understanding that uh, it's a process. And so when we're working through that dream... It's quite understandably so that we're, 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 we're understanding that the importance of this. And why we have to understand is because when you're looking at it, you're saying a dream leads to disappointment. And when you look at disappointment, because what you happen to find out is that your partner has flaws and imperfections, hurt and anger entering into the marriage. And so you have to look at to, that realizing the dream is now tough because you got to work at it. You have conflict and you want to change your spouse all of a sudden because the dream is gone. The feeling is gone. The emotion of that dream is gone. And now you have to deal with an unresolved disappointment. But then you go down and descend down this mountain and you get to discouragement because from disappointment to discouragement, you have an unteachable couple allows disappointments to pile up leading to discouragement in the relationship. When discouragements pile up, it usually derives from the individuals focusing on their own needs. And so, understandably so, it's, it's important for us to grasp and recognize that. It's important for us to realize that how important it is for us to, to work through a process. Because then when you go from discouragement, then it goes to distance. Because when discouragement engulfs the marriage at that stage... The spouses make every opportunity to distance themselves from each other. Husbands try to fill the void with careers, hanging out with the guys, sports, and projects around the house. And wives look to spend their time with children, their girlfriends, and hobbies. Avoiding the marriage responsibility and avoiding God's best for the marriage. And so why this is so important for us to grasp is necessary. Because then when it comes to distance, then distance goes to disconnect. You got distrust, relational disconnect settles into the relationship. And then the stage where, this stage where affairs begin, spouses are vulnerable and they're longing for relational connection. They're longing it with it with God. But what happens is they find themselves battered and beaten because they're just looking for something that doesn't ultimately exist. 
And then they get to the point where disconnect just turns to discord, loneliness, abandonment, vulnerability, and temptation sets in. And a steady meal of of the following, criticism, differing of opinions, arguments, anger, rage, contention, conflicts. And then sexual intimacy doesn't even exist in this, in this stage. It's like they say, you're sleeping with the enemy. It's roommates. And then it leads to the unfortunate thing of emotional divorce. So what happens at this stage is that it really doesn't exist anymore. The, the relationship doesn't exist. The marriage reaches this place of, where there's really just a saving of a reputation. You hang on because you just have to. But then you choose not to get divorced to avoid any public humiliation. And so what happens is they pretend, this particular couple pretends they're honoring God, but it's a facade of a marriage relationship. We have to be honest because if we don't deal with it, God's name is at stake. We bear the name of Christian. And we, as a, as a people of God, whether married or not, when we're out there in relationship, we can find ourselves falling away. And see, that's why it's important for us to understand that when it gets down to this point of descendants, where it gets down to the emotional divorce, we have to go to the other side of the mountain and realize we've got to get back to the dream. It's called forgiving love. That's the first stage going back. And, these, and, and Dr. Gary and Barbara Roseberg says that forgiving love is the first Stage. So today we're going to talk about that. Forgiving love is a choice. It's a choice. And we have to decide. It's not just a feeling. It's a process. We have to practice it. And it's a choice. And it's important for us to understand that. So now we have the myths of forgiving love, of forgiveness. We have myths of it. And the first myth that I want to share with you is this. When I forgive, I must also forget. I've talked to a lot of people, and they understand that forgetting is really hard. It's very challenging. Jeremiah 31, 34 st- simply states it, that, that this, that for the new covenant, God says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, God is the one who can forgive and forget. But we are commanded to forgive the offense. We could even possibly forget the offense But ultimately, we don't forget the pain. The pain is real. But I think God allows pain even in our marriages or with other people in relationship. Because then it reminds us never to do it again. See, that pain is there as a warning sign to say, hey, Bruno, don't do that again to your wife. And it's important for us to understand. Number two, the myth that I wanted to choose here is that the hurt is too great it's impossible for me to forgive. Now, let me just share a few things. The, word, the, the little preposition to and for me. We got to be careful. The hurt is great. It is great in marriages. It's overwhelming because, see, when it hurts, in fact, when you get angry, and we'll talk about it in a minute, it's because you care. It's because you're passionate about your marriage working. But the too great means that then it's too big for God. Or when we say it's impossible for me, that's a true statement. It's impossible for me to forgive. But through God, all things are possible. And what could these hurts be? Well, there are some hurts in marriages. There's many. But a hurt could involve a a secret spending free that leads a marriage, a couple, to bankruptcy. Where one of the spouses just decide to spend and not tell the other spouse. 
Sometimes it's just terrible wounds from the in-laws. Maybe at the beginning of the marriage, through the marriage, some of that can happen. Now, sometimes you have a great relationship with the in-laws and sometimes you don't, but that could create a wound. Another one is scars from step-parenting. There are many families out there, single-parenting, step-parenting, and that could lead. But there's another one that's very, that one that's even identified in the book here, pornography. It's the most, one of the most leading, misled um, things that are happening in marriage, that are causing marriages to break up. It's pornography. It's an important thing to discuss because we cannot ignore it. It's happening too often. It's authenticity that's lost in the relationship because now the woman begins thinking, who is my husband thinking about when I'm engaged in sexual intimacy? This is what's happening amongst relationships. In fact, let me share something from an article from a doctor. He says, the typical church approach doesn't work. Listen to this for a second. I appreciate this approach. According to Dr. Roberts, churches often treat this issue as a moral one, pornography, but fail to recognize it's mainly a brain problem. We tell men to try harder, pray harder, love Jesus more. Dr. Roberts adds, but what starts off as a moral problem quickly becomes a a brain problem. Telling a man to try hard is only tightening the noose of bondage. Today, science sheds new light on biblical truth regarding strongholds of the mind and how a person becomes enslaved to sin. A hijacked brain. Understanding the brain is pivotal. When a woman is nursing her child and she's skin to skin with her baby, her brain releases a neurochemical called oxytocin, which emotionally bonds her to her child. The same thing happens during sex. God designed oxytocin as the glue for human bonding. During a sexual release, oxytocin along with other neurochemicals are released and cause us to emotionally bond with our partner. When you watch porn, these neurochemicals are also released, which bond you to those images. This is why Satan attacks our sexually, sexuality are so much because in attacking human sexuality, it actually interferes with human bonding. According to a neurologist or neuropsychologist, uh, he says this, Dr. Tim Jennings, any type of repetitive behavior will create trails in our brain that are going to fire on an automatic sequence. The results This result is years of bondage. This is how 68% of Christian men can love the Lord with all of their heart, but be trapped in sexual bondage. The repeated viewing of porn literally changes the physical structure of their brain. And this this is a true statement, a true finding, a true research that we have to recognize. We can't blow this off because God created us this way. And we have to recognize it doesn't push anybody off from this heinous sin but yet it's a, it's a reality that exists among, amongst men, even women today, that fall into this trap. Don't think that women are off the hook because this happens with women. And when they fall into this trap, it creates such hurt, such pain, that it's overwhelming, that only God can bring forth forgiveness through the life of a believer, and only God can truly heal. But each one of us, if we've ever had to endure that, it's painful it's, there's resentment and bitterness could, that could just create catastrophe in the marriage. And this is important for us to understand. 
That's why forgiveness can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why forgiveness can, over, can be overcome through the greatest offenses, even offenses that, thre- that threaten to drive couples to divorce. And we're going to see a story today on a video of how important that is. Here's the last myth I want to share with you. It's important to understand, too. I can't forgive until the other person asks for it. So if you and I know that we've offended someone, it's important for us not to wait. It's important for us to take that next step. Yes, I know the Bible says when we're offended, we're to go to the other person. But if there's a known situation or offense, it's our job to go to that person and discuss that with them in great prayer because it's necessary. And if it's in a marriage especially, how important it is for us to turn to our spouse and saying, have I offended you? If I have, please forgive me. It's important. We can't wait. It could be catastrophic in a marriage. So how do we oppose the myths by defining true biblical forgiveness and love? How do we do that? I mean, how is it important that we we do this? Well, one is real clear. Biblical forgiveness. See, biblical forgiveness is the act of freeing from an obligation, a guilt, or punishment. Canceling a debt. We understand that in the scriptures. Now, you might be sitting in front of you and saying, where are all the notes in front of me? We're getting there. Just hang in there. We just have some state statements here. You'll get there. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says this. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of his son. And in the kingdom of his beloved son is a transfer that God did. It's a standing from transferring one to the other. In whom we have redemption. Now redemption means this. Releasing from a captive condition. So you and I, before Christ, we were captive in our sin. And God, through his mercy and his grace, and through his justice, which he didn't have to do this, but God in his mercy and his grace offers forgiveness to mankind. He offers it by handling it himself. It's a willing and sacrificial act. He comes in the form of Jesus Christ, incarnate, the Messiah, the one who sets us, sets us free, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the second person of the Trinity, and we understand that our faith is established on that. So now when it says in Romans that he's the just and the justifier, he truly is that. But God, who is just and the justifier, did not have to do this. He could shut the doors of heaven and still be just. And he continues to be the justifier because he offers his forgiveness through his son. So biblical forgiveness is important to understand that it was a willing and sacrificial act by God. And now in our faith, it's established through Christ and our standing. So now when we've been given to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light of his son, we stand with God innocent, although declared righteous, but yet guilty. And when we stand innocent, it's God's work. So when God forgave us, it's his work. But how come it's so difficult for us when an offense comes against us, we just can't seem to forgive someone or our spouse? See, if God's willing to do that sacrificially, how come we're not willing? Because sometimes the pain is so overwhelming, we can't seem to grasp it. And the offense is so overwhelming, but yet God has showed forth his love to us. Let me also offer another scripture to you. In Colossians, the same book, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, it says this, Paul said, And you who once were alienated, 
and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Meaning when you were standing as a sinner before God, before he offered a willing sacrifice of forgiveness to you and I, we stood alienated and evil in his sight. But it says, verse 20, but he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death. Very important because it's through the body and through that, through Christ himself that we have eternal life. But the shedding of a blood And here's the reason, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. So it wasn't enough to just take us from sinner to saint, but now that we're in saint, we're not supposed to go back. We're not supposed to go back to that place of being in that position of sinner. Now we have to live presented before God. The purpose of it is to be holy and blameless before him and to be above reproach around everyone else. So now we are called to willingly and sacrificially forgive others who offended us. But if we're over here still in our position of alienation, if we act on that, the word simply means this in the Greek. We continually and persistently are out of harmony with God. So when we stand as a saint, we're to be above reproach, but if we choose not to forgive someone, then we remain back in that position as a sinner. Now, we can say we are holy because we're over here, but we're we're acting as though we're alienated and out of harmony with God. See, that's the point. See, when we're not forgiving, we're out of harmony with God. We can continually justify it and say, well, I had the hurt, the pain. You can, it's just overwhelming. It's too big. It's too big for me to forgive someone. I'm just going to let them get over with it. God's saying, no, you're out of harmony with me. But see, what you have to understand is forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a choice. And forgiveness is a practice. It's a process. It doesn't come immediately. It's a process that we have to work toward. And so it's important to understand that what Paul is saying is that you and I are to live above reproach, live in a state of forgiveness. And that's why he even says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so redemption is quite clear because it's a setting free. And so understanding all of this, you might say, well, you know, Bruno, I appreciate that. And I know it's biblical, but I'm still dealing with the pain. No problem. Because sometimes we're still sitting in unforgiveness and we don't understand. So how do we deal with the hurt of unforgiveness? Well, there's a pattern. There's a pattern that produces pain. There's a pattern that produces pain. The, the first one is this. It's an offense. It starts with an offense. An offense is, occurs only when one person violates the other person's standard of righteous living. Now, understand, it's subjective. It's subjective. When one is violated then the other person has a violation, it's come. So if it's subjective, if my wife violates me, it's subjective. It may not have anything to do with the word of God, it just may be my standard, and I'm violated, so then I have to decide what to do with that offense. Either I sit in that offense, or I decide to let her know about the offense. Let me just use my wife and I as an example. So it's important to understand that sometimes my wife will say, you don't listen when I talk to you. Okay, it could be true. Um, when I'm sick, you don't take care of me the way I take care of you. Could be true. Could be true. You're never romantic. Don't you want to just slow dance with me? Uh, she likes doing that. Okay. All right. We just put a little slow dance. We dance back and forth. Just, it's just something she enjoys. I'm romantically challenged once in a while. Okay. Got things on my mind. But uh, some of those old songs is like, do I have joy on my mind? And sometimes I don't, okay? 
but why can't you put away your clothes? Because <laughs> I don't have time. I'm too busy. But I try, I try to get to it. I've been better at that since we moved down here. Now, the husband might say this. I wish you wouldn't touch my stuff. How many times has your wife touched your stuff? You go back to the place where you know it was there, and you go and you circle around for about 20 minutes, and you're like, why are you touching my stuff? I wish you would stop nagging me so much. This is the husband guy, by the way. Hey, just say sorry, honey. I said that yesterday to you. I wish you would stop reminding me to put my clothes away. You see, that's, all of that's happening. It's, it could be an offense. Not really a major offense, but a minor one. But here's the thing. Whatever the offense is, we have it. That's one of the patterns. Number two, but in most, most major offenses, it could turn to unresolved hurt. When a person chooses to remain offended rather than pursue reconciliation. Sometimes... We hide our hurt. Sometimes the husband is pursuing a dream. They're problem solvers. They want to overcome something. They want to prepare and provide for their family. And they're going to do all they can to provide. But sometimes it takes more time than usual. And the wife wants to establish a home and a husband wants to establish a career. And when the wife is at home, she wants attention. But she doesn't want to kill the dream. But the dream becomes a mistress. The job becomes a mistress. Sports in our lives become a mistress because we men love the nothing box and we love to sit in front of that TV and watch a game. We love to have our time to ourselves. And all of this becomes a dream and a mistress. And then the wife stuffs it. She doesn't want to say anything because she's afraid if she does, the husband's going to say, you're nagging me again. I don't want to talk about it. And what happens is the wife stuffs it and she puts it away. But then she, it becomes this place where resentment, bitterness, and hurt starts to captivate the relationship. And when stuffing happens, it can blow up at any moment. It can cause sickness in the marriage. And the pain is overwhelming. And when this unexpressed need starts to happen, then it goes into another stage that we call harboring anger, harbored anger. This is when a person chooses to allow his or her emotions to consume and direct their lives until they receive restitution. There's internalization of the offense. Harboring means to protect yourself from the pain that occurs when one offends you. You choose to internalize it and justify it. And then isolationism starts. You protect yourself from the pain. But the problem is you lock your heart up and then you lock the other person out. And you could be pleasant and respectful on the outside, but emotionally disconnected from your spouse on the inside. This is just something that happens. And this is part of that whole handout that I showed you and that you have in front of you. It starts to go from disconnect to discord, which could lead to ultimately emotional divorce. But you may say, I am angry, Bruno. And you know what? I have a right to be angry. I'm hurt. I understand. So is it wrong to be angry? That's the question I ask. Ephesians 4.26 is a controversial verse even among scholars. Be angry and do not sin. Well, see, God commands me. I can be angry and do not sin. So I'll be angry. I just won't sin. But really, it's not really a command. Fortunately, I wish it were that easy. But in the Greek, it's a conditional concessional clause that simply means if you are angry, do not sin. I would never encourage anyone to be angry to the point where it's unrighteous. In fact, there are different ways in which we can be angry. There's righteous anger, 
or God's anger towards sin and injustice. And if we come across that, we can be angry. But the problem, the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger is when we get angry against someone personally. Then what we do is that we judge the person and not the sin. So then what we do is we don't disconnect the two, we bring them together. And then we become holier than thou and we say we're righteous, but that's subjective. So what I call righteous isn't truly righteous. What God calls righteous is righteous. And so I have to be careful. There's a slippery slope there that we don't find ourselves where we allow pride and anger and frustration to overcome us. So it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fine line to that. Number two, we have displaced anger. When you're angry at your husband or wife and you take it out on the kids or you kick the dog and you, and you kick anyone else that's you just punch a wall or do something, it's displaced anger. You don't deal with the anger. You just displace it. You're not really getting rid of it. You're just sitting in it. Another one is it's just leftover anger. It's called remin, you know, reminiscing in the past where, you know, I don't know about you guys, but it could be that your wife is angry at you. She stuffs it. She doesn't tell you about it. Then a month later, she starts telling you, and she's angry because you didn't see it. And you're like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Am I supposed to read minds here? I don't know. What do you mean you're offended? I didn't understand that you were offended. And then all of a sudden, it was like, wow, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. And then what happens is if you've done something wrong and you know you've done something wrong, it's just something in the marriage that's been sitting around for 20, 30 years and the spouse just keeps replaying the video over and over in their minds. They internalize it and isolate themselves because they keep replaying the video. This is what leftover anger is all about. This is why we need forgiveness. This is why we need that forgiving love. That's why we have to get back to the dream and learn how to forgive. I'm going to say it again. It's, it's a practice. It's a process. And it's difficult. But what? How, how are ways? Now, just looking at your, um, your outline now. Now you can look down and you're ready to fill in some blanks. Ways we can deal with unforgiveness. What are some ways? Now, two ways. As you work through offense, hurt, and anger, there are two ways in which you can come out of it. You can come out on an open loop Remain in resentment and bitterness and anger and contention and conflict and just live without forgiveness. Or you can decide to close the loop. So one of the things that you can do, you can avoid the conflict and continue in unforgiveness. You can keep doing that. You can pretend like it doesn't exist. You can just and imagine it never happened. You can isolate yourself from it and just live on a facade surface world. Or you can, you can avoid it. Or you can do another thing. You can face the conflict and close the loop by forgiving. But again, forgiveness is not one minute. It's not a moment. It's not an event. It's a process. It takes practice. And it's important to understand that. Because there are aspects to forgiving love. We understand that. There are aspects of forgiving love. One is what we already discussed. I just want to bring back the review. We talked about you know, biblical forgiveness is the act of freeing from obligation, guilt, or punishment and canceling the debt. That's God's forgiveness to us. So now, as I stated before, without alienating ourselves and living in that state of a sinner, we're called to now bring forth practical forgiveness, which is actively choosing to let go of offenses, hurts, and bitterness. Now, you can say in your mind and convince your brain, convince your mind, convince everything about yourself that you are actively choosing to forgive. But it's, it's a process. 
It doesn't come immediately. And we have to understand one, one thing too. That the scriptures are clear. Colossians 3.13 are very clear. Paul says this in Ephesians and Colossians. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you. Which really the Greek word means to blame against you. They have something that they're blaming you for. They have something against another. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you all also must forgive. We're commanded to forgive. So we're commanded to not live in this life of alienation out of harmony with God. We're to live in harmony with God. It's not easy. It hurts. It's really hard. It's very difficult. It's painful. The pain doesn't go away. It's in, in, at times it feels impossible. You feel like you're not getting anywhere, but you got to do it. It's a choice. And you might say, well, I want to do it, but I don't know how to do it. It starts with prayer. We're going to talk about what it looks like. But you might say, Bruno, you don't understand. The pain is so overwhelming. You mean I have to overcome this with forgiveness and my spouse? Yes. Yes, you do, because the Bible says you do. I'm not telling you. The Bible's telling you. You're going to be out of harmony with God if you don't. If someone offends me, I want to go immediately to that brother or sister and say, hey, let's talk about this, because I'm commanded to forgive. It's not about emotion. It's not about feelings. Because if it's about emotion and feelings, I'm going to forget I'm a Christian and start pulling out some fists. I'm going to be honest with you because you can get angry. Anger is, necess is a necessary thing to go through. But it depends on what you do with that anger. Because then you drop the fists. And you say, Lord, help me. It's important to understand that. That it's not about feeling and emotion. It's about a commitment to honor God. It's important. I want to share a story with you about Bob and Audrey. Bob and Audrey, the pastor and his wife, they have a story that's overwhelming. It's an incredible story of forgiveness. And I just want to share this with you. If you've heard this before, it'll blow your mind. Let's just share this video with you for just a minute. Bob and I both loved that whole idea of doing anything for Jesus. We were in ministry. I was a Jesus girl. We were rock solid. For Audrey and I, Serving God meant everything to us. And that involved, you know, a lot of long hours, a lot of devotion, a lot of sacrifice. As a pastor, I saw this young man who just needed some guidance. So we invited him to be a part of our family activities. I remember feeling so exhausted, so overwhelmed and hiding that. And then this young guy starts coming into our life. And the first thing he says is, he seemed to be doing everything for everybody. Do you need some help? And I was like, yes. But the more we hung out together, it turned into, you are, you are so beautiful in every way. Like, I wish I could find a girl even just half as beautiful as you. When I knew I was going to be seeing him, I made sure I looked good. I felt like I was invincible. I thought I could have this guy flirting with me. Nothing would ever really happen. You know, sin takes you further than you ever thought you would go. It goes little by little by little. You just start just one little compromise, just a teeny tiny compromise. And then you quickly find out that there's no such thing as a small compromise. Because that one little touch of the hand or that one little rubbing against, it did something. It, it electrified me somehow. And so I wanted more. You see, sin always craves more and is never satisfied and wants that next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And before you know it, you're on this, this thing that you just can't get off of. 
I had a sexual affair with this guy for three weeks and I knew that it couldn't continue. Because I just felt something in my heart say, you have to tell Bob. It was the most intense, scary, awful moment in the whole world. And I said, I actually did, I did it. I had an affair. So immediately, my mind is flooded. Images of her with this person. Where am I? Where were our children? This isn't just a little oops. You say that you love me, but yet you give yourself like this? It makes no sense. The rage and the anger that I had was so intense. I just stormed out of the room, slammed doors, stopped my feet. I mean, I was a mess. I really wanted to hurt her. I wanted her to feel what I was feeling. Just when I didn't think the desperation could get any lower, I found out that as a result of this affair, I had become pregnant. And on that day, I didn't think I could face my life. I just felt like I had blown up my whole family. I cried out to God, will you forgive me? And then I went to Bob and I said, could you ever find it in your heart to love me again? I knew that in that moment I had to forgive her, but I was only capable of so much. That afternoon, I had to forgive her again. Later that evening, the next day, weeks, months, even years, forgiveness really was a process for me. But we together chose to press in you know, to each other, but really into God, because we were hoping that he could rescue, not just us, but rescue our family and my children. When he was born, I asked Audrey if I could name him. I gave him my name, Robert. I don't want my son to ever question one day in his life whose boy he is. He's my son now. The fact that he has his name just is that complete acceptance. It's such a picture of what God does for us. Not only does he accept us, not only does he forgive us, but he gives us his name and he redeems our life from what was supposed to be stolen and taken away. He gives us as a gift. And you know what? There's really a revival after repentance. We don't have to have any secrets anymore. We trust each other and we love being married. When you participate with sin, it always takes. But when you participate with God, He always gives life. You know, just before I get to that quote, Bob did this which wasn't mentioned in the video. When this happened, many went against him. They questioned why he would even consider forgiving his wife. Some alienated themselves from Bob and Audrey. That He obviously got removed from his position as pastor. He had to move away. But this is what he did. Took a long blanket. He just wrapped it around himself with his wife and his children. And he covered them. And he said, 
Mom is pregnant. We're having another child. This is not a mistake. God is using it for his honor and his glory. And we, we, will, we believe God to cover this mistake. The kids had no idea what he was talking about. But he said the clothing of forgiveness is God clothing us in our sin. It's not about what wrong we did. It's that God's greater to cover us with his blood. And that's what he did. And when he did that, this is where his life was. He chose to say no to the chains. He chose because he said, you know what? I'm going to have this wrapped all around, and this is going to be tied up with me and my wife. She's going to be on the other end. I will not allow Satan to get a hold of our marriage. I will drop it and forgive my wife and not allow it to enter anymore. And let me tell you something. She received it. He granted it. But there are some people that are here. Because, see, this is what this quote says right here. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free, but you discover that that real prisoner was yourself. Bob realized he would be a prisoner if he tried to hold on to the pain and say, you know what, I'm not letting her get away with this. I want to hurt her so bad. I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to create bitterness. I'm going to make sure I won't ever let myself be open to my wife again. He said, I won't do that because then Satan has a hold of my marriage. That's what forgiveness is. When we choose to live in unforgiveness, we choose to allow Satan to get a hold of our marriage. And we choose to live out of harmony with God. It's time for us as a people of God to forgive. It's really simple. I know it's hard. I know it's painful. I've had to forgive many people in my life, but I'm set free. I don't even think about it anymore. Many people, situations that have hurt me deeply. And here's a simple approach. The one who's requesting forgiveness, if your need to request for forgiveness, one, you just confession. I was wrong. Just cut it out. Stop covering it up. You're just going to make more sin, just like David did. Cover it up. Stop covering it up. I just, I was wrong. Confession. Two, sorrow. I am sorry. Recognize that you've hurt the other person. Now, not just recognizing you hurt the other person, but repentance says, I don't want to hurt you like this again. That's what repentance is. It's saying, I won't do this again. That's why I think God doesn't allow us to forget the pain. Because repentance and pain remains. And what it says is, I don't want to hurt you like this again. That's part of that marriage. Lastly, just request it. Will you forgive me? Because that then starts that process. Now, if you're the person who has to grant forgiveness, that's again, this was Bob. Bob was sitting there and he just said, no, I'm releasing it. I forgive you for committing adultery against me and especially against God. I'm closing this loop. I'm not going to allow this to, to harbor and I won't allow this to hijack our marriage. And when that happens, reconciliation comes in. I don't hold this against you any longer. They are at joy, at peace, at hope. They love one another intimately. And what he said in another video was, while she was having an affair, they were still intimate. That's what was so strange. But she was missing something. And she sinned. But she's not getting away with it because they're still crying over it. There's still pain. They don't forget the pain. 
but they forgive the offense. And that's why it's important for us to understand whether in a relationship, a marriage, or anything, we've got to be careful to not allow any bitterness, as the Bible says. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 31, 32, don't allow any bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or slander be put. Just don't let it come around. Just put it all away. Put it all away along with malice because now malice brings it to a place with deep, deep, deep judgment and slander. But be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. You know what kind, the word kind is in the Greek? It's grace. That's what forgiveness is. It's grace. When the person who's receiving it, it's grace. They don't deserve it, but it's grace. Tender-hearted means compassion. You have to have compassion for those who have wronged. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I just want to encourage you today. Are you in a marriage at a place where it's emotional divorce? Is it possible that you need to learn to forgive? I say learn, not that you've got to start the forgiveness process. God's commanded us to forgive. God's commanded us to take that step. Let me encourage you today. Maybe it's something you've got to start. I want to invite you. I'm going to ask, you know, Pastor Dennis and even Jack to come up later. But maybe you need to deal with it. And maybe you need to make this a place where it's an altar while the worship team's going to come up right now and they're going to sing a song. Maybe it's just a time where you can come to the side. Maybe it's your marriage. You both have to come up. Please don't allow your pride or your reputation or worrying about what other people think. Take this opportunity and say, enough's enough. I got to deal with this. We have pastors up here and elders that can work with you and encourage you. Take that moment. Let this be an altar as the last song is being sung. Let this be a place where you use it to bring honor and glory and praise. Maybe it's the first step. Maybe it's the necessary step. Whatever the case is, take that step today. Maybe it's in your seat right now. Maybe you're just afraid. You're not sure about coming up. Maybe it's just that first step. But I want to encourage you throughout this marriage series and even in our conference, we're going to encourage you to consider that.